0: The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident Oh, Jacob. hey everybody welcome to the culture pop podcast i'm steve mason along with sue kalinsky great guest today josh larson who is from the film spotting podcast uh, and radio show we're going to talk about killers of the flower moon the scorsese movie a bunch of uh, stuff about award season all that kind of stuff hey sue how are you
1: i'm good um are you growing a mustache
0: i am thank you for noticing yes i am growing a mustache it is uh Huh? Huh? So huh? kind of it is a um, November
1: Movember. you know about November? I do know about Movember. Yes.
0: Yeah, so you're supposed to grow a mustache, and they're having a contest at the uh at our company to see who can grow the best and worst mustache. I think I'm in the running for worst, uh, because it's gonna be very spotty and a little bit of white and a little bit, of, it's it's gonna be something else. Uh, but it's to raise awareness for uh prostate cancer and testicular cancer and suicide among men and guys hate going to the diet. Do- How's Tom with going to the doctor? Does he go get a regular checkup?
1: He does, you know, because he had, he had, you know, a little, little issue a while ago.
0: So that's right. That's right. He does go. He goes pretty
1: regularly. Yeah.
0: Because a lot of guys will just not go like uh, the guy I work with, John Ireland. uh, He says, I won't go to the doctor. I don't want to know if something's wrong. It's like, no, that's not the right attitude. Catch it early and be okay with it. Don't just, whatever it is, just go to the doctors once a year. Right.
1: Yeah. I would have a hard time being married to something like
0: that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's serious stuff. Sorry, serious John. Stuff. Yeah. Sorry, John. <laughs> sorry, John. So, uh, I saw a movie over the weekend before we get to killers of the flower moon and all that stuff. I saw Priscilla, which is uh, directed by Sophia Coppola. I've written down the actors because they are both fantastic. The actress that plays Priscilla is Kaylee Spaney and the actor who plays Elvis is Jacob Elordi. They're not people that I was familiar with, but wow. What great performances and what a, what a subtle, interesting sort of ephemeral kind of movie. She's got that weird way about her direction where it's, it's just like little slices of time, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really powerful. So Priscilla, great, great movie. I absolutely, absolutely loved it.
1: Well, I uh, really didn't know anything about it. I saw that you were going. I knew that the movie was out there, but, you know, obviously I know it's about
0: their lives, but... Yeah, um, yeah. and what's creepy is, I mean, Elvis, she was a freshman in high school. Yeah. Uh, mm.
1: Well, you know, years ago, Jerry Seinfeld dated somebody who was in high school.
0: No, Um, really?
1: Shoshana, I forget her
0: last name. Shoshana, isn't that who he married? No. He no. did not marry Shoshana. No, no, he went out with her for a while,
1: but he—I think he used to pick her up at high
0: school. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, that's weird. That's. But the I weird think part. I
1: think she was eighteen.
0: I'll, no, I'll be honest. I think that mm-hmm. the Elvis that they cast, this uh, Jacob Elordi, is the best looking Elvis. That even better looking than Austin Butler in the Elvis movie, this guy looks like Elvis. He's just a striking, good-looking guy. He's great in the movie, great as Elvis. Uh, it so, amazes
1: me when 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 uh, these people that no one has ever heard or seen anywhere burst onto the scene, and I always wonder how casting people find them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, casting people take a shot on somebody. Like, um, I used to know the uh, president of casting or vice president of casting at, uh, Fox and he took a liking to in auditions over a period of time of David Duchovny. This guy's name was Randy Stone and he oh, loved Randy. You, did you know Randy? I have a great Randy Stone story. Oh, I've got a bunch of Randy Stone stories. He's He was a great guy. Um, But he uh saw David Duchovny and was just looking for the right spot for him. And of course, the right spot was Fox's X-Files, where he burst as, and became a really big star. So a lot of times, casting directors and people like Randy would sort of highlight somebody and just look for the right thing for him. And maybe that's what went on with uh Kaylee Spaney and Jacob of Lordy. Um, So, Randy Stonesword, go ahead.
1: So, uh, I was doing stand-up at the improv one night in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and um, Randy was in the audience. I didn't know he was in the audience, and I had a joke about Susan Lucci. Um, She had lost, I guess, maybe her 16th Emmy. (laughs) Yes, yes. She was up, like, 16th nomination, and I called her. Oh, no, I was, I was, oh, no, I was talking about Charles Manson. He was up for parole and I called him the Susan Lucci of parole. Oh, right?
0: nice. I like that.
1: So, Randy, it was his favorite joke. Yeah. And he had kind of a connection to Susan Lucci so he he uh contacted my representation and he said I love Sue Kalinski and I want to meet her so I went into his office and um I don't know what shows were were around at the time but he wanted to um just cast me in some hit show just like nice. you know, like like a like a reoccurring regular okay
0: right?
1: it never happened ah. it, it, it never happened but he told me that he had won an Emmy and he knew Susan Lucci so he mailed his Emmy to her just oh, wow. to just to give it to her for a little while to you know like like the Stanley Cup, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like yeah like a loner and um anyway but he was he was great and fun and he kind of reminded me of um what's his name from uh, from Bravo Andy um, Cohen. Andy Cohen. He kind of yeah. reminded me of Andy Cohen a little bit. You yeah, know? He, I could
0: see that. Well, was, so I wrote a screenplay. I've mentioned this before on the show, a very bad, bad screenplay autobiographical called Growing Up Late. And I sent it to Randy Stone. Um, And the reason I sent it to him was that he had won an Oscar for a short film called Trevor which ultimately led to him founding the Trevor project and it was a gay my my screenplay was gay themed it was about my life and coming out so i thought all right perfect place to send it i'll send it to Randy Stone called me in for a meeting uh and we met and and uh, there was never really anything going on except that we started dating uh and uh-huh. we dated for about uh, 6 months oh he's, he's a great guy his best friend uh Jody Foster if you've never mm-hmm. seen uh, Trevor, it's a short film. It's, uh, it's an unbelievably moving and cool and funny film that ends with, uh, the best use of Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out that I've ever seen. It's so good. It's so good. So if you haven't seen that, go check it out. And Trevor Project, really, really good charity, uh, benefits kids who are coming out as, as LGBTQ and helping them through, you know, a really difficult time. So the Trevor Project, really, really good. All right, let's let's do this thing, huh? You want to yeah. do this thing? Yeah, right, uh, let's do this
1: thing. But you know, the more the more I look at you with your mustache, <laughs> I yes. just have to say, you kind of look like like a '50s actor, you know, like like I, like you're someone I'd see like in The Thin Man or
0: something. Oh you know? yeah, I'll take that. I'll take yeah. that. Yeah, I want to see what it, uh, I I can't wait. How to many see days it, is that? This is uh, uh, t- a week. Oh, that's that's all know I know got in a that's, week. That's weak. Yeah, it is weak. It is weak. Well, stay tuned to the podcast so that you can continue to follow the progress as it inches forward (laughs) to something that resembles a mustache. Um, all right, here we go. Our guest today is a film expert known for his work on the Film Spotting podcast and radio show. He is also the editor-producer for Think Christian, a website and podcast exploring faith and pop culture. As an author, he's written two books, Movies Are Prayers, and his latest, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror. Josh Larson joins us. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the invite. Looking forward to this. So I've been a, I became a big fan. I was listening to your killers of the flower moon review and I, I already loved the movie, but from listening to your show, I gained an additional appreciation from it. And and that's really saying something. Tell me about that process
2: for you. Yeah, that's gratifying to hear. I mean, that's the goal for film criticism, right? And I think podcasts have a particularly, a particular opportunity to do that because we are having that conversation with each other. Adam Kemp and I are my co-host and I in Film Spotting. This is a chance for us to not only share what we thought, but hear what the other person made of something and maybe realize something we missed, argue about something that tends to happen a fair amount on our show. Um, But yeah, it's kind of an experience between the two of us that we hope listeners are then having too, is just broadening their experience of a film. And we had a chance to really go deep on Killers of the Flower Moon and do that.
1: You know, I, um, I a lot of times will avoid a podcast if it's way too long. You know, Hmm. know, it's kind of like, like Steve and I will joke about like reading books and Steve will say, I say, did you read that book? And he says, oh, it's way too long. (laughs) It's like, it's it's 500 (laughs) pages. I can't go over 200 something pages. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people may even say that about movies. I mean, this movie was very, very long. Um, But just chiming in and, 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 you know, agreeing with Steve on this, it was, I could have listened to you guys talk about this film. For so long because mm. it was so dense, and the 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 you know I love when when critics get into minutia or they get into you know um, you know talking about cinematography for for fifteen yeah. minutes or talking about the score, and um, and and those were two things that were so brilliant in this
2: film. Oh my goodness, that score! How about that, huh? Mm. The Robbie mm. Robertson composed score, just incredible. Yeah. And visually it's such a, you know, one of the
0: nuggets I pulled from your review is kind of the similarity or the theme that exists for Martin Scorsese, uh, that for example, you guys sort of drew a comparison between killers of the flower moon and sort of that being a rat element, uh, Mm. that exists in, uh, in, in killers of the flower moon What tell me, it, it very much like kind of a, a Goodfellas kind of vibe you talked about. It talks sure. about that.
2: Yeah, Goodfellas. And of course, when you say rat, I think people think of The Departed as well, another crime mob movie that yeah, in features fact, a literal rat. <laughs> Nicholson's got that scene where he yes. rubs his face and complains about the
0: rat, the dirty
2: rat. So good. So good. So yeah, it is sort of a recurring theme is, um, not necessarily honor among thieves. A lot of times for Scorsese, it's more dishonor among thieves. And I also think Leonardo DiCaprio being in Killers of the Flower Moon is part of this too, because I've always appreciated him more when he's playing. I usually say more of a weasel than a rat, mm-hmm. but a guy who's just, he's up to something else. You know, um, I think for whatever reason, DiCaprio has a particular talent for that, even more so than, you know, a romantic, a straightforward romantic lead like in Titanic or something. I think that's his real gift. And here is an example, an opportunity Scorsese gave him to really be one of the most distasteful characters along these lines. Some of the other characters he played, I think we can, for Scorsese, we can sympathize a little bit with their predicament, if not always their choices. But here, I don't know this. Uh, this Ernest character is a tough one for audiences, and we've been hearing some feedback about that, right? It's like, I didn't want to spend this much time with this really despicable guy. Um, makes this a challenging film for some audiences.
1: Yeah, the the characters, the relationship between um, Ernest and uh, and Molly, um, you know, and this is something that you guys touched on. You know, she came off as such a smart, savvy, you know, someone who 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 doesn't suffer fools. And you just wonder, um, did she know? Did she, you know, sometimes you may know something. Look, I've been in relationships where I kind of knew that the guy I was with was maybe cheating on me, and I didn't want to believe it. I mean, all the yeah. signs were there, but it was... It, it was easier for me to just say, No, no, that that, you know, that's not really what's going on and make excuses for it because it would have washed away, you know, I, I had been with someone for like sixteen years. so it would have washed away sixteen years of mm-hmm. being with somebody mm-hmm. and 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 I just figured, you know, let me not believe that. and i'm I wonder with her, um, she seemed kind of too smart in some ways not to know that something was fishy.
2: Yeah, and that Lily Gladstone performance is so intelligent. That's part of it, right? I-, I think you're right. What you're describing is a common psychology. We've all probably done that to a degree, is not one to face an awful truth. So, I understand that's at play, but what you're describing. Uh, Sue was a bit of a sticking point for me. Maybe if we had gotten a bit more time with Molly um, and understood a bit more that that perhaps is what she was doing, that she was purposefully deceiving herself. Um, Obviously Gladstone is capable of that sort of nuance and complexity in the performance. We've already mentioned how long this film is. So I don't know if we could ask for more scenes, but I do feel A little bit more time spent with Molly and her perspective and her psychology might have smoothed that out, which is not a sticking point for everyone, but it was a bit for me. And I know others have mentioned that too. Um, I was editing an article um, on Killers of the Flower Moon for my day job for Think Christian. And the writer mentioned how he knew a woman who walked out of Killers of the Flower Moon for precisely this reason. She Hmm. got so frustrated with the Molly character um not taking action because she perceived that she must have known uh, that she left the film. So, people are responding in different ways to to this character, the character of Molly in particular. You know, the you one thing... Just, Go ahead,
1: Sue. I just want to follow up with one thing. Um When you think about it, you know, this is something that just came to me, how she didn't, you know, say anything. You know, she was surrounded by all these people dying, all these people in her family, you know, and... I, I don't know. Maybe there was some thought in her head. Oh God, I speak up. I'm the next one to mm, go. I mm. don't know, but Self- that was something. Maybe I don't know something that just came. Yeah, to mind.
2: that could be. So, where does
0: Killers of the Flower Moon fit into the the sort of uh, Martin Scorsese library of films? All the great movies we've seen from Scorsese over the years. Where? And, and here's a guy in his 80s who's making this unbelievably ambitious and beautiful movie. Um, where does it fit into the the canon of Scorsese films?
2: Yeah, we spent a little time talking about this after our review. You know, what, we're a nerdy show, so we do a lot of rankings and lists and things like this. And uh, neither of us, neither Adam Kevin or my co-host or I, were quite ready to commit to a Scorsese ranked list because... We have not seen all of his films. We've seen most of them. By What have you missed? Um, I've missed, um, who's that knocking on my door? Okay. I've missed um, New York, New York, believe it or not. And I oh. think maybe three or four more. I'm getting there. I just saw The Color of Money for the first time in the last month. Um, hmm. yeah, because I knew I wanted to get to the point of having seen them all, and so we are very tentatively placing *Killers of the Flower Moon* within all of these other ones we've seen, and uh, I think I actually had it higher than Adam, even though I think Adam liked it more than me. Hmm. So it kind of points to the fruitlessness of these exercises, right? It's so subjective. <laughs> um, but for me, I have it right now tentatively at number seven, and. Ah, uh, may sound low considering all the acclaim it has gotten and how much I love it, but I'm talking about movies like Goodfellas, which we mentioned, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, The King of Comedy, all in front of it on my list, maybe a bit more controversial. I have the Nicolas Cage movie, Bringing Out the Dead, very high on my list I didn't it. love and that movie. I, have, I didn't
0: love that movie.
2: Yeah, I know. It, it's, it was seen when it came out as sort of a Taxi Driver retread, um, and for me holding them together made me love it even more, is see it as sort of a response to Taxi Driver. Um, But all that to say, Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, if I've seen 25 Scorsese movies um, and I have it at number seven, that's pretty strong.
0: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I I want to talk about your, as you mentioned, your day job. You're also the editor and producer of Think Christian, which is both a podcast and a website. When did you first start to look at film through this lens of, spirituality, Christian Christianity?
2: Probably, you know, I was raised uh, in the church, uh, raised by um, a family of faith. So, this has just been steeped in who I am from the beginning, but it was a process of learning as I went to school, started studying film more seriously. What does that actually mean? Like, how are, how are these things brought together? And because I had that childhood, and I also grew up in a movie-loving family, so it wasn't like they you know, my parents didn't let me watch movies. They were discerning. They had their limits, but we loved film. So, it never felt like there was conflict for me. At the same time, going to a Christian college, um, I got some of the theological training for how to think about culture from a Christian perspective. I'm grateful I come from a Dutch Reformed tradition that at its roots is appreciative of culture rather than fearful of it. So, it's a little bit aside from the culture wars that I think a lot of people associate with Christianity, Um, but still I had to think, okay, if I really wanna be a film critic, which I did at a very young age, what does this mean um, to be a Christian film critic? And graduating from college, this was the mid, well, 1996. So yeah, mid nineties, that's when the culture wars were kind of aflame, right? And so when I looked around at Christian publications covering film, um, I didn't see a fit for me. These were places that were basically counting swear words. Hmm. Um, among other things, and I had never watched a movie that way. That was just not you know, it wasn't that I disagree I did disagree with it. But beyond that, I would not have known how to do that. It just was not part of my thinking or training. So I ended up going into the mainstream media and worked at newspapers for many years um for about seven or eight years. I was a film critic for the Naperville Sun outside of Chicago and did the work that way. Again, never felt a conflict in my heart. Obviously my faith informed what I wrote, but I was also writing for a general audience. So I wasn't going to bring um, specific religious connotations to my reviews. And then I ended up taking the Think Christian job in 2011, which was specifically for a um, faith audience that wanted to think theologically about pop culture and culture in general. And that's where I had to say, okay, now I need to actually do this. And I'll be honest with you, it was a learning process um, over the next couple of years. Something I'm still learning about how to do is bring that lens, we like to say. So a particular lens on a film, which we all bring, some people might bring a feminist lens, some people might bring, I don't know, a Marxist lens. Um, For me, it would be a Christian lens on a film that also respected the film and what it was trying to do. So it's very tricky not to hijack the movie or force a message onto the movie. Um, and that's a balancing act that I'm still, you know, every time I write or talk about a movie from the Think Christian perspective, sometimes I think I do better at that than other times. It's just a really tricky needle to thread, but I love the opportunity to do it. It's kind of, it's kind of like where I felt most comfortable in bringing those two things together. Um, so I've been grateful that a place like Think Christian exists because it's rare, um, to be honest with you, to take that approach to culture from a Christian perspective.
1: It's it's really smart. I saw your breakdown on The Wolfman. Which oh, that was I, so fun. Which I really appreciated because that was one of the first horror movies that I had had ever seen. Nice. And I was like, it scared the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to share with you, there was a comedian, the late, great Robert Schimmel. And he, I don't know if he ever did this on stage, but we had a conversation about The Wolfman one day. And he was saying that, the wolfman in in parts of of the of the film would actually tell try to tell people that he was the wolfman mm. but nobody ever believed him mm. like he he would be out with somebody actually during the day looking for the wolfman with everybody and he would pull someone aside and say jim it's me I, i'm the wolfman <laughs> and the guy would be like oh Stop it. You know, we, you know, we, you know, stop making stuff up. Stop carrying on like this. You're not the one. He says, I'm telling you, I'm the wolfman. man. <laughs> <laughs> he really warned people, but, yeah. but no one ever believed him, which I thought was, you know, kind of comical. So, it's just a funny yeah. thing I wanted to add to
2: that. It, it is. It's funny, but you also have interesting things at play there, right? You have confession, someone trying to confess, and you have what we were just talking about earlier in the context of Killers of the Flower Moon, you have denial, right? A denial, in this case, of sin, not wanting to see what's in front of you. So, yeah, the Wolfman is such an incredibly, you know, like so many myths that have lasted for so long, such a rich text.
0: So I've got a very antiquated, antiquated view here. I think about modern film and Christianity because I've always thought that that the Christian right or evangelicals or the Christian community doesn't like Hollywood, doesn't like Hollywood actors, doesn't like liberal views that prevail in Hollywood. Set me straight on how Christians view movies and Hollywood through this lens, as you talk about.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's certainly there, right? Because the North American Christian, it's not a monolithic group at all. You have that, um, you know, segment that you were just describing. Uh, I found that segment tends to be the loudest and get the most media attention. Um, And so, that's sort of the common perception. Definitely, I can say that as someone, you know, walking in both circles. But you also, you know, you have a Christian left in North America. You have all different um, perspectives. And I would say to answer your question, it does go back to that um, reform tradition that I grew up in and that Think Christian is still a part of, which um, first of all, sees culture as a gift. And the theology behind it is that um, God is a creative being, obviously created the entire universe, created humanity, and not only that, but created humanity to be creative beings as well. Um, this is the concept of the Imago Dei. That's how humankind reflects the nature of God by creating things. And this includes all sorts of things, but especially art. And so this tradition I'm a part of also talks about God's sovereignty, which then recognizes that this art created by human humanity Um, falls under God's sovereignty. So this doesn't mean it's baptized. This is where it gets tricky. It doesn't mean that all art is pure and discernment shouldn't be part of the faithful Christians viewing process. Those things are all true, but it does mean that there is the potential for God's truth to be found in works of art that is not explicitly Christian and to be found in works of art from artists, filmmakers in this case, who would not identify as Christian or even religious at all. So that's sort of the foundational theological philosophy um, that gets us to this point. But as I said before, it can be tricky. You still want to respect the, the choices made by those artists, what they were trying to do with their film. Um, and to do that, I tend to focus on the text. We were talking earlier about music, cinematography. I feel if I can draw my theological interpretation from those elements, those choices the artists have made, then I'm meeting them halfway, right? I'm saying the work you've done, here is how it hit me as a person of faith, rather than saying, oh, you have a savior who dies in your movie. Well, I'm going to call that Jesus and call it a day, right? That's that's not enough work in my mind. It's paying attention to those creative choices and then filtering them through the lens that I think makes this a viable approach.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I love this, 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 I think Christian thinks so much because, you know, I I grew up Jewish and, um, you know, there was never, I don't think there was ever any kind of, uh, of religious bent on whether, you know, you should watch something or, or even looking for that in Mm. anything in, in my upbringing, you know? And, and, and after finding out that you did this, I kind of looked up to see if there was like a Jewish equivalent of this and I, I, I couldn't find one, but, um, what was a little disturbing to me, and I guess it's like a lot of religious Jews, um, they feel like they don't like to, um, they don't go to the movies normally. I guess like Orthodox Jews don't, and I'm sure mm. Hasidim don't, um, mm-hmm. because they think it's a waste of time. Like that, nothing is really being accomplished in those two hours. And I mean, it, it you know, look, I, I'm not judging it, but it's just. It, it makes me sad that that's their takeaway,
2: yeah, you know, that's from, fascinating from,
1: from, from from art, you know right.
2: So it's less of a moral objection or maybe a different kind of moral objection the the wastefulness from that perspective. I had not heard that. And if you sue do come across um you know a group or a website or something doing that sort of work, I would be fascinated to learn about it from you because I think about this often when We are writing or talking about the work of the Coen brothers, which obviously um, is explicitly Jewish, um, serious man, maybe the most so, but I think it's in all of serious man. Yeah, so good. So good. And yet at the same time, they have this fascination with the gospel, uh, the Coen brothers, right? That's Mm -hmm. perhaps even more prominent in their films. Um, and so whenever I'm wrestling with the Cone Brothers film, I'm always wondering, is there like a think Christian equivalent? Because I would love to to find what those folks are saying about these movies.
0: Yeah. So your latest book, it's it's over your shoulder there. Fear not, Christian appreciation of horror. So I I read I, I didn't read the entire book, I'll be completely honest, but I did read uh the The Shining, which was a mm. really good example. A movie that I I love, uh have always loved, wrote a uh, one of my college thesis on The Shining. So I love the movie. Um, and the, the visuals, you mentioned the steady cam, all the stuff we saw in that movie. Uh, the twins, how creepy they are. Um, the, the idea of The Shining itself put, plug that into your Christian lens and, and
2: tell me about The Shining. Yeah, such a great film, a formative one for me. I saw it way too young. I write about that in the introduction to the book. Um, and it is the craft that I think is most impressive uh, about The Shining for me. You know, Stanley Kubrick film, a master here at work playing. And I think he, he is having fun playing with the horror genre. But in terms of looking at it through a, a Christian lens, fear not, uh, we structured as looking at horror subgenres. And the idea was each subgenre explores a particular type of fear. Now, The Shining, I place within psychological horror. I think you could also call it a ghost story. A lot of these move from subgenre to subgenre. But for the purpose of the book, I said psychological horror. And the fear I propose psychological horror is exploring is our various anxieties. They could be different things. Here, it's the anxiety of the, the Jack Nicholson Jack Torrance character, um, the anxiety of being a failure as a father, as a husband, as and as an aspiring artist. He wants to be a novelist. He wants to write a novel, right? And when his fears and those anxieties get inflamed by this haunted hotel, what we get is the shining. And so that's a basic psychological interpretation. But the theology comes in where I acknowledge in the beginning of Fear Not, There's horror all over the Bible. And one of the things it explores is psychological horror. And so I examine those passages in the Bible that do explore that. Um, Many of the Psalms written by King David, not the Psalms of praise, but the Psalms of deep worry and anxiety echo some of the same, same anxieties we experience or a character like Jack Torrance experiences. And then I go back and say, okay, so where are those reflected in The Shining as well? And then does the movie at hand offer any sort of gospel hope towards these anxieties as the Bible does? Now, in the case of The Shining, as everyone knows who's seen it, doesn't end all that well. I mean, you know, I guess there are survivors, let's just say, so we don't spoil it. Um, But pretty pretty awful ending still. And so I don't know if you can point to The Shining as an example of psychological horror that offers gospel hope. Um, I write about The Babadook, a more recent film. yes that I argue does do that, the Australian film from director Jennifer Kent. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how uh, the construct we had for the book that does bring that theology into it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'll um, oh, go ahead. Yeah,
0: Steve. I was going to say, we've seen, uh, pivot off the book here, I we've seen Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, there are two other movies this year that I think kind of captured the zeitgeist um, and that's the, the world famous, uh, Barbenheimer, uh, both Barbie and Oppenheimer, uh, opening on the same day, which was, I used to own movie theaters. This was a boom for movie theaters. Mm, just yeah, A, a yeah. boom having those two movies come out midsummer. Um, do those three feel like best picture nominees to you? Uh, Barbie, Oppenheimer and
2: Killers of the Flower Moon? Yeah. They check all the boxes. Um, you know, I always have to separate kind of switch my brain from what are my favorite, what I think are the best of the year and what are the likely Oscar mm-hmm. <laughs> contenders? Cause those are different, you know, obviously there are different qualities you look for, but in the case of those three, I think they fit both. Um, you have revered filmmakers and Greta Gerwig who made Barbie is at that status after little women um, and lady bird. And, you know, all these filmmakers have also been honored by the Oscars before Thinking of Christopher Nolan behind Oppenheimer. You have historical um, stories being told in the case of Killers of the Flower Moon and uh, Oppenheimer. And then also, you know, Barbie, you might say, well, it's a little too slight, maybe, as as a comedy. But I think this is where Gerwig's um, previous two films and her Oscar acknowledgement, at least in nominations previously, come to help her, right? She's recognized as being in this league already. So anything she does is going to be um, considered for Oscar contention. And then the last thing I'll say is back to your point, um, Steve, These uh, those two first films you mentioned made a ton of money. And that's what Hollywood loves most, more than anything. They reward that um, generally, historically at the Oscars as well. They like to honor hits. We've seen you know, smaller films get recognition in more recent years, but across Oscar history, it helps to be a hit. And Barbie was a huge one. So that's only going to work in that movie's favor as well. I'm I'm fine with it. I'd love to see all three up for best picture. I think that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I um, I actually saw Barbie last night. Oh, <laughs> oh really? Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen thoughts. it. What do yes. you think? Um, you know, I, I I loved it. I mean, and I, I I sometimes I don't like to wait too long because I you know I hear too many people talking about it and I don't like to read and and know anything about the movie. Um, but it was so smart, and you know, I grew up a tomboy, so I related that first scene that 2001 Odyssey kind of yeah. takeoff. Uh-huh. you know to to see little girls like breaking these baby dolls i i never had dolls growing up because mm. i was a tomboy so i had guns and i had gi joe dolls <laughs> and um and um and i hated barbie you know barbie was like stupid to me you know because yeah. it, it was it was just too girly but i love the idea of of how um little girls were rebelling over being mothers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was so smart. Um, and, and, and then, you know, the idea of how, you know, I have a girlfriend who has a, a child now who's 20, but I remember when her daughter was maybe eight and she saw the cover of uh, some glamour magazine and the model was very, very skinny. And at eight years old, she said to her mother, she's not even like, it's not attractive. Like mm. she's too skinny. Why is mm. she so skinny? She needs to eat more. And that was coming from an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah. So I just loved all of the, the, you know, it was just deep. It was such a deep film. Yeah, and and an important film, I think. You know, for for, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of a lot of things that young kids maybe didn't get, but the message behind it, I thought. Yeah, really and I important.
0: think, by the way, that speech that uh, America Ferrera gives, uh, that sort of uh, here's how hard it is to be a woman uh, in this modern age, is sort of the uh, the heart of the movie, I think, and the reason why it it works in such an
2: emotional way. Yeah, yeah, you both have spoke to re- spoken to reasons, you know, why it does deserve that Oscar attention where, yeah, they're looking for box office, but they also generally want to award meaningful work that is, you know, Sue, two words that you use, deep and smart. And maybe to the surprise of some, though I figured it would be that, knowing it was coming from Greta Gerwig, but to the surprise of some, this movie about Barbie dolls is deep and it is smart.
1: And and one other thing I just wanted to say about being a tomboy is that one of the reasons why I wanted to be a boy, it it was nothing sexual. I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't attracted to girls. I I just thought boys were cooler. You know, I grew hmm. up with three older brothers and they just seemed so so cool, so much cooler to me. Everything that they had cowboy boots and, and high top sneakers and, and dungarees and they didn't have to wear their hair all up. And like my mother would <laughs> always try to, you know, put my, my hair up in braids and do fancy stuff with me. And, um, and then you know my brothers you know never had to do anything in the house you know I had we had to clear the table we had oh, to make wow. we had to we had to clean the clean the house you know with my mom and my brothers you know they took mm. the garbage out you know that was basically <laughs> it so they mowed the
2: lawn I imagine they didn't, a lawn. They,
1: no they didn't we, we we actually had somebody we had a oh we had okay a gardener. man they
2: had it good sounds like. they yeah. had it good
1: but but just <laughs> the idea that boys were so much cooler and it wasn't until I you know, was maybe, you know, in my 20s or something that I discovered that girls are really cool. (laughs) But, but as a, as, as a youngster, I, I I didn't, I didn't, I, I, and I mostly had boyfriends too. But you know, what's interesting
0: about that, that girls are really cool idea. If you're a kid who saw Barbie right now, you would come away with the girls are really cool idea uh message which got to is getting the kids now later than it got to you sue yes yeah, yes.
2: yeah i think that's probably true yeah.
0: so i want to ask you about a couple other movies that are going to be coming out I, I haven't seen any of these either but i want to get sort of your quick read on anticipation and all that kind of uh, thing uh poor thing starring emma stone i hear
2: she's fantastic the trailer is really entertaining yeah, I am seeing that here in Chicago where I'm based, the next couple of weeks are where a lot of these year-end films are going to start um being screened for critics. So I'm seeing poor things uh tomorrow. Actually, I'm very excited for it. Uh also because of the filmmaker here, Greek filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos who um you know, I think of as he he's made <laughs> some very strange movies that I caution recommending to people, even though they're among my favorite. The first breakout one of his was Dog Tooth, which was about um, young adults who had been raised in their home by their parents and not allowed outside of their home since they were young kids. So kind of a weird social experiment movie that's very disturbing, but also kind of funny. The Lobster is another one of his um, mm. with Colin Farrell that uh, has a similarly weird premise i won't even get into very funny but very dark and then of course he made the favorite of a couple of years ago which did feature uh, emma stone as well and olivia coleman in that as well which was this you know set in 18th century england more of a costume drama but also very dark and bitterly funny So that's what I expect from Poor Things. Um, One of the most intriguing filmmakers, and it's always fascinating when they team up with an actor they worked with before successfully, that sort of doubles the excitement factor, I think.
0: You know, it's funny about uh, Colin Farrell, and you mentioned the movie The Lobster, which is just weird right um Very. So, so i had dinner with with colin farrell and did A Q&A with colin farrell and i we talked about what the movie means and he had a really interesting answer he said i don't know uh which i thought <laughs> i, <laughs> I thought speaks that. to the way i
2: felt when i walked out of the movie it could could be a lot of things but i'm not sure exactly which yeah mm. i i love it when actors and filmmakers even say that because that that opens up the interpretive possibilities, right? It kind of goes back to what we were speaking about before is, hey, I've made this. What do you make of it? Like, that's much Uh. more fun than, you know, well, here's my thesis statement on what it is. And now we can all agree that it's correct. And we go home. That's kind of boring to me. How about Napoleon, uh, directed by
0: 85-year-old Ridley Scott, starring Joaquin Phoenix? Now, Ridley Scott, if I'm not mistaken, he's never won a Best Director Oscar. I don't know if he's won in any other category, but there are a couple of directors this year who have never won. Who uh, Christopher Nolan is one who's never won for uh, he won he's never won Best Director,
2: um, and Ridley Scott has never won Best Director. What are your how do you anticipate Napoleon? And that's a factor, right? When you try to weigh these Oscar predictions, um, voters do tend to, especially at later stages in career. Uh, reward someone who has not won before. Napoleon, it's the same material we've been talking about, historical, right? Massive scale. I would say I'm intrigued by Napoleon, but Ridley Scott for me across his career has been a bit hit or miss. It really depends on the material he's working with. He is um, just an insanely talented visualist. So I know I'm going to get that. Um, But again, as an entire experience, it depends on the story you're also going to get. I'm not a huge fan of biopics. Now, this might be something different, but just the idea of another film about Napoleon, okay, I guess. Um, I'm open to it, but not something I've been asking for. Then again, Joaquin Phoenix, one of our best actors working right now. And so that is an exciting prospect as well. So, So yeah, definitely intrigued by this one. And absolutely, it's, you know, in the Oscar race without even coming not even having come out yet. It's still in that conversation.
0: Last one. Let me ask about one more. Color Purple based on the Broadway musical starring Fantasia Barino and Taraji P. Henson. I saw the broad I saw the original film, the Spielberg, I, I never read the Alice Walker book, but I saw the original Spielberg movie and I saw it on Broadway. It's a it's a great show. The Fantasia Brino role is kind of the role of the movie. Um, If she nails it, I think she's right in the middle of all of the awards season.
2: Yeah, I am really looking forward to this one. And this is an instance of, you know, Spielberg's version. One of the, I like it, but it is, it's a bit conflicted. And I think it is an issue of perspective um now you know when spielberg made this 1985 it was a different landscape um and when a filmmaker of his stature wanted to make a work that was as lauded as this even though he's a white filmmaker and this is a black story that was seen as positive that he was bringing this story to the screen using his power right today we would say sure but really, this should be told from someone who shares some element of that perspective, um, and open up the possibilities of storytelling from different vantage points. And so, I think that's probably what I'm most excited about this. For is some of those creatives you mentioned, Steve, um, have a background that's different than Spielberg's that might bring more to the material, bring more of an interpretation. I think that's exciting. You know, in general, I don't think we need remakes, redos. I just call them reheats because you don't know how these all fall into what category they are. But when you are giving the opportunity for a different new voice to interpret material like this, I think that's an exciting prospect. So we'll see.
0: Well, uh listen, I hope this is not the, I hope this is only the first time we talk because I've really, really enjoyed this. And as we get further into movie season, we'd love to have you back. Um, the, uh, the Think Christian podcast and website is out there. The Film Spotting podcast and radio show is available on all podcast platforms. Your latest book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror. And you can find everything, all that stuff and links to it at larsononfilm.com.
2: Did I get all that right? You got it all. Thank you so much. Uh, this was fun conversation. So I appreciate the invite. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm a fan and, and we
0: need more thoughtful discussion about the art of film and you're out there doing it. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. And there is Josh Larson. You know, one of the things I love about that conversation is that in addition to film, we got to talk about some of your uh, failed relationships, and also <laughs> the fact that you were a tomboy as a kid. I love that. I I love that you're sharing personal stuff. But the I I think the the bad boyfriend thing was probably a pattern over the years.
1: Until until it wasn't.
0: Until it wasn't, and now it's not. Exactly. And now
1: I you know it's it's better to have gotten all of that out of your system than to start out with like really good boyfriends and then end up with a (laughs) shitty husband
0: right so you went from bad boyfriends to a good husband whereas a lot of people go from good boyfriends to a really bad husband right like
1: yeah like friends will say why did you ever let that guy go (laughs) you know out of all the people in the world how did you end up with this idiot
0: yep well it worked out for you it sure did Tom's a good one. Tom's one of the good ones. Hey, listen, if you are watching the podcast right now on YouTube, please do us a favor and subscribe to it. Feel free to leave a comment or a review of some kind, something like that. Uh, also, uh, something like that. Also, uh, we're available on Apple and Spotify podcast platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. And again, a five-star review, a rating, all that stuff is good. And if you do leave a comment or a rating or a review um, send us an email maceandsue at gmail.com and we will send you a culture pop podcast t-shirt I still have one with your name on it Sue I still have a culture pop podcast hoodie with your name on it when are we getting together (laughs) it's been a long time hasn't it We should get together. Yeah, we really should. Uh, So do that and then email us maceandsue at gmail.com. Great show today. Thanks very much for listening. I I think we all agree, go see Killers of the Flower Moon. It is an investment, three and a half hours, but it is absolutely worth it and it completely pays off. Uh, Thanks everybody for watching and for listening to the Culture Pop podcast and we will see you next time.